There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, April 19th. I'm Sophie Casas. It's Weed Week at Vice, so today we're bringing you some cannabis coverage that maybe you haven't heard much about. We're going behind the scenes of a new Vice documentary called Lebanon's Green Gold, the debate to legalize cannabis. In the fertile Bekaa Valley in eastern Lebanon, there are communities that have been growing cannabis for generations. While it's illegal, the area is semi-autonomous, so the authorities don't intervene that much. But all that could soon change. Lebanon is about to take a historic step for the Arab world with a proposed bill to legalize the cultivation of cannabis for medical use. But in the fertile Bekaa Valley in eastern Lebanon, where communities have been growing cannabis for generations, this news has not gone down so well. In this new short documentary, Vice's Roni Karkar finds out why Lebanon is so keen to legalize cannabis. And he travels to one of the main cannabis farming communities to find out why they think they'll lose out if their livelihood becomes legal. So today I sat down with Roni Karkar to learn more. Hi, Roni. How are you? Hi, Sophie. I'm, I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about my film, our small, small corner of the world. Yeah. So start us out by kind of explaining the geography and the politics of the Bekaa Valley, which is the region in eastern Lebanon where your film takes place. What does it mean that it is autonomous? Right. So to understand kind of the Bekaa Valley, uh, we'd need to understand a bit about Lebanon's political system, which is based on the end of civil war um, Taif agreement, which basically split up the government between the many religious um, sects of Lebanon. Um, I've, pre- I've previously made a vice documentary explaining this uh, complex system and how some parts of the youth are trying to grow out of it, mm-hmm. but it still heavily exists. And what it pretty much boils down to is a split between Christians uh, and Muslims of Lebanon within government. Mm-hmm. And then um, that, boils, that goes into further splits between subcategories of these religions. So, for instance, the, the president uh, of Lebanon, by convention, can only be a Christian Maronite. And the Speaker of Parliament uh, can only be a Shiite Muslim. 
and the prime minister himself would have to be a Sunni Muslim. So this is this was kind of made to kind of create a balance between all the uh, religious sectors after the civil war. So every religious group can have, can have its own rights protected, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, Lebanon's geography is split up by religion as well. So, for instance, in the south, we're bordering Palestine. Uh, you have a heavy Shiite presence, whereas in the north, you have a heavy Christian presence. Druze and Sunnis also have their own territories. So now when it comes to the Bekaa Valley, it's one of those places, and what I mean by semi-autonomous, it's it's inhabited by almost all the different religious uh, sects. Christians and Muslims live as close neighbors, and the Lebanese military has a strong presence there since the Bekaa borders Syria, and there's an ongoing war there. Um, So what I mean by, you know, effectively what I mean by semi-autonomous is that almost all the um, religious sects live in that area. So there's no one religious group heavily controlling that area. And and talk a little bit about cannabis in the Bekaa Valley and, and what that looks like and sort of how that functions. What I would say is that, you know, the Bekaa is like it's like almost a country within a country. It's like when you go there, it's like you're traveling into a new kind of landscape and a new kind of territory. You get a sense of uh, a lot of adrenaline when you first go in there because it's hustling and bustling. But at the same time, there's like a lot of agricultural landscape. So you can see it as you go in and it's, it's this beautiful landscape and it's it's huge and you have a lot of grapevine fields, so that's where, where they make most of like Lebanese fine wine, and you have a lot of like most of the um, the country's produce kind of grown there, and then uh, eventually you have you kind of start going into like no man's land, and that's where you start seeing a lot of the uh, marijuana fields, and uh, um, the further you go, like the deeper you go in the more you see like a controlled environment of how it's grown. Whereas usually on the borders of these towns that grow it, kind of it kind of just grows sporadically, if that makes any sense. It kind of grows by the sides of the road and on like random hills. So due to like the agricultural nature of the Bacaa Valley and how easily the crop grows there, they found that the cannabis plant kind of is the easiest to grow because it doesn't need a lot of water. It, it brings in a lot of money. So um, a lot of towns have made it their main produce, basically, illegally. Right. Do you know how much money it's generating for the Bekaa Valley? I mean, there is no exact numbers. There is a statistic that I, you know, that kind of goes around that there are, there's almost um, 600 tons of hash that goes out of Lebanon yearly. And um, the, a kilo would go for about, it used to be $2,000. Now it's dropped down a bit. I think it's around $1,000 now. So I, I guess you could kind of do the calculations and see how much right. that brings in. But yeah, it, it it's is a lot. Yeah, there's no specific number, but it, it is a lot of money. Um, yeah. So you made this film because we're at kind of an interesting turning point in Lebanon where 
the country is close to legalizing cannabis for medical use. And I mean, as you say in your film, this would be a pretty historic moment, not only for the country itself, but also kind of the Arab world more broadly. So walk us through what the conversation is like in Lebanon around legalization. You You know, here in the U.S., the debate is highly controversial and you have Mm -hmm. people sort of on both sides and everywhere in between. So I know that this is is just for medical use, but what is what is the debate like? Right. Well, so this film, I mean, it came the idea came about about a year ago. And initially, for me, it was mainly about sort of these, these this illegal industry that operates illegally, obviously, and then them, you know, this kind of human side where they're making uh, medical hash oil for people who are self-treating. So this is the idea, you know, initially. And then as I was researching and I was as I was getting into the pre-production phase, the news came out that Lebanon is, you know, as a shock, actually, that Lebanon was considering legalizing due to the, the McKenzie report that came out. So that kind of changed my angle a bit, and I had to include that somehow. So the film kind of took a turn, and we had to right. focus on, you know, kind of bring that in. So the debate, I mean, on on a societal level, I would say, I mean, the, the Lebanese people are, are kind of a humorous people. They've been through so many bad situations. There's been so much tragedy in the country itself that they've kind of, found humor in those tragedies so when something like this came up you can only imagine how much people made fun of it (laughs) Uh, so one of the funniest memes i'd seen was was like an image of snoop dogg photoshopped into the lebanese parliament as the minister of agriculture (laughs) so stuff like this spread like wildfire so when you talk to people on the ground i feel like people are open to this idea and they don't really understand the implications of it this is why the kind of so the the documentary dove deeper into um, how and why the government is is planning on legalizing it. Right. So they don't really understand that you know farmers would be affected, especially since such it's such an insular industry. It doesn't really um, it's still a taboo. So in the mainstream, it's still a taboo, but on a societal level, people kind of accept it. And they accept that it would bring in a lot of money, especially Mm -hmm. since it's doing that already illegally. So they're open to any kind of thing that would help the economy a bit. Now, when it comes to the government itself, there is a strong debate on how and why and when to legalize it, especially since the government is split up into different sects and it it, uh, accommodates for all the different uh, factions of Lebanon. So at this initial stage, it's mostly for export. So it's still unclear on if it's going to be legalized internally. Some people say, you know, logically, yes, we should legalize internally if, we're, if we want to export. And that's just for medical use. But the debate isn't as strong as you would think because it hasn't been taken that seriously, seriously yet. Mm-hmm. So I feel like when it comes down to it, when when people like when the government takes it more seriously, then we'll, there will be a stronger debate. But at this stage, it's just speculation. It's just uh, an announcement that they've made. 
And I don't think it's as big of a split as it is in the States. I think people are more open to it somehow in the region, especially since it's a, it's a much smaller country. So, Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So let's mm-hmm. talk about these farming communities because that's really what you kind of zoomed in on in your film. Um, you wanted to understand how the farmers in the Beka Valley who grow the cannabis uh, are going to be affected if medical marijuana is legalized um, in mm-hmm. Lebanon. So what did you learn when you talked to the farmers there and you talked to the mayor of a village? You know, how do they feel like they're going to be affected by legalization? It's justified that they kind of have a sort of mistrust towards the government's intentions. So I, I kind of wanted to capture the humanistic side or, or the human side of, of the farmers in the Bukaa Valley. So there were there was a, a couple of documentaries already out there that kind of went up to the Bukaa Valley and did stories about the hash industry and the mafias around it and all mm-hmm. that. But it, to me, it felt like they were glorifying the kind of the violent culture and, and the mafia culture and like this illegal trade whereas you know if you really talk to these people they are you know humans and they they see this plant as their main source of income it's not like they have tried they haven't tried anything else and and it has worked for them and they're just choosing to do this for the for the sake of it being illegal they've tried a lot of things and it just didn't work the government tried to come in and uh and help out in certain ways, kind of uh, start giving them like different crops to grow, but it was always incomplete. So they never had like a complete support from the government when it comes to different crops. And back in the day, the U.S. intervened as well and tried to set up different crops for the people, you know, set up different donations and there's some really f- funny stories out there of, of what kind of stuff they'd send. You know, one of the stories I, I heard was they donated a bunch of cows to the Bacaw Valley <laughs> to, to start like a new trade, but they didn't have the infrastructure or the factories to kind of take care of these cows. So they all died out. So seeing as how this plant kind of grows by itself and doesn't need a lot of support, it doesn't need a lot of water, you know, it takes like one or two or three rounds of, of watering it to kind of grow. They've relied on it heavily to, to as their main source of income. Yeah. And seeing as how the, the Bacaw Valley itself is kind of insular and closed off, they've turned their communities into, um, you know, their own little governments, basically, where they operate by their own law. Yeah. And you talked to this mayor of one of the villages and he mm-hmm. called the plant, the plant of paradise. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. I mean, that was a really interesting scene where he was sort of just like showing his love and respect for the plant itself. What is that community's relationship to this plant? It seemed like in the film, there was just like a lot of sort of, uh, what's the word? <laughs> love for it. <laughs> yeah, love for it. Yeah, and rightly so. I mean, like I said, it's their main source of income and the people up there just revere it. You know, they love the plant. Um, It's, uh, again, if you go to like any house, you can see it growing in the backyard. You can see kids running around it. But yeah, they they have a very close relationship to the plant. And to them, it's it's part of their culture. If, so in the Bekaa, you have uh, the Baalbek temples, which are historic 
Roman temples. And you can clearly see that it's the plant, the hemp plant is clear, is etched into the writings on the walls over there. So they see it as a historic kind of, you know, a historic thing in, the, in their uh, culture. So them depending on it as, so, so the thing is, all their houses that they've built up there, all the schools, all the mosques and churches, they owe it to the plant itself. Right. They owe it from the income. It, it just t- turned their lives around. You know, when they started seeing what the, how much they can profit off of it, they fell in love with it, basically. And it used to be a kind of a taboo, but if you go up there, not every farmer is, you know, necessarily a smoker or a user of this uh, substance. And they started seeing it as less and less of a taboo. Mm-hmm. One of the funny things that the mayor mentioned to me, he used to say, you know, back in the day, they used to call a stoner kind of like an outcast or, you know, when they wanted to diss someone, they would call him a stoner. But nowadays, if you call him a stoner, he, they take pride in it because <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a, a, a generous income, you know, mm. a generous plant, such a generous plant. So not only that, not only do they use it as their main source of income, but they found ways to kind of dissect the plant and use it for different uh, different things so they make ropes out of it they make um, they make building material out of it so w- when the harsh winter comes they support their pipes with it so it kind of uh, warms up their pipes and it doesn't you know the water doesn't freeze they've made they make bird seed, bird feed out of it they've found many different uses for the plant and that's why they see it as a plant of paradise basically yeah So another part of your film is looking at how the Lebanese government actually is planning on going about legalization, Mm -hmm. sort of the how and the when. And I'm curious, you know, the farmers you spoke to were not really excited about legalization. They were Mm -hmm. were concerned Mm -hmm. that it would affect them negatively. But does the government have plans in place to support current cannabis farmers? Or do you think that you know, if you have legalization in the country that these farmers will lose out? I mean, the the farmers themselves are very skeptical about the government's intentions. The government says it's for the benefit of the farmers. You know, they'll have more support from the government once they legalize it. But the farmers' fears are whose power that, you know, goes to, where the power goes to, basically. And their fear is that the government will privatize the farming of it, just like they did with uh, tobacco back in the day. And they kind of took over and, uh, you know, they profit mostly from the tobacco sales and exports. So their fear is that they will do the same with this plant. And what they're, what the farmers are hoping is they would have representatives from their own communities that kind of dictate how they how they legalize it and what systems are in place. But that seems like a long shot, to be honest, mm-hmm. uh, from from what I've seen on the ground. When I talked to the MP, he, he strongly um, suggested that they were going to privatize it and kind of make a private company that deals with the farmers and um, takes care of the export and sets the prices for everything. So their fear is that they would have total control. Uh, another thing is... The fact that it's illegal makes it more of a rare resource. Mm-hmm. So the price on it is much higher. 
because there's a lot of risk involved in, you know, cultivating it and um, and in exporting it. Right. So once they legalize it, their fear is that the price is going to drop and only a select few of farmers are going to be able to benefit from this. And those farmers would be kind of, uh, would have high stances with the government. So yeah, they, they want it to kind of remain the same way it is right now. Yeah. How risky is it for people involved in growing cannabis and kind of the trade around the Bekaa Valley? Like, what are the risks that people are kind of facing? So since places like Yamune and Der Ahmar, so the towns that are up in the Bekaa Valley that are known to grow this plant, it's harder for anyone from those towns to find any regular job just because they're from those towns. It's harder for them to you know, join the military or join any government entity just because they're from those towns. So you can kind of imagine the bad uh, reputation they get. So in terms of how risky it is, the I mean, it, it's very risky. The government does a lot of, they carry out a lot of raids to try to control what happens up there. But since it's such a, a, a lawless land, it turns into a kind of a battle and the government has to pick and choose their targets. So they don't, you know, they don't do it as often anymore just because there's high risk involved. There's civilian life. There's, uh, and, and the, the further, the more they make money, the more fortified they become. So I feel like at some point they started building a decent relationship and they formed a kind of balance between the, between the farmers themselves and the government, but it's still kind of a, a, an illegal trade. And the bigger risk is the trade itself. I wouldn't want to just throw my own um, kind of view on it because it's it's a very unclear. There's no, no specific as evidence that says on how it's traded or how how it even gets to other countries. So right, like how does it even get? You know, a lot of it is exported to Egypt and then Amsterdam, but no one knows how. And there's a lot of you know, speculation and rumors around it. I have my own speculations <laughs> and rumors, but I wouldn't want to put those out there just because they might not be true. Yeah. Just in terms of the risk, I know I noticed that, you know, some of the people you interviewed kind of hid their faces or disguised their mm -hmm. voices, whereas others, like the mayor that you spoke to, was totally out in the open mm -hmm. about who he was. How did your subjects kind of make those decisions or like what went into you know, those kinds of ethical decisions as a filmmaker. Right. Well, the, the mayor himself would be considered a governmental, you know, figure. And to him, he has nothing to lose. There's nothing tying him to the trade itself. He just kind of protects his community. And to him, that's the most noble thing he can do. How do I put this? Um, to him, the best thing he can do is be open about it and show people that there's nothing to worry about. You know, we're not criminals. We're not all bad. Stop creating these false accusations about us you know, from his perspective um, and just see us as humans. Mm -hmm. Whereas the farmer himself would have a lot more to lose if he was identified, Yeah. you know, since he's directly involved with cultivating the plant. Yeah. So in terms of sort of showing the human side of this mm -hmm. uh, issue, you not only spoke to farmers and the mayor um, and people in these towns, but you also spoke to 
both a Lebanese doctor who studies the medicinal effects of cannabis and then also a man suffering from MS who regularly uses hash oil as treatment. Can you talk a little bit about these two parts of the film and kind of what you learned and kind of the takeaways? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll start with the professor because he had a really interesting story of how he got into uh, cannabis research. Professor Muhammad Murwi, he's at the um, Lebanese American University, and he was the kind of pioneer, him and his students, actually. But so the way the way he explained it to me, it was that, you know, one day he was in his hometown, a village in Lebanon in the mountains, and he was having a conversation with an old timer there. And the old timer pointed to a wild carrot plant and told him that this plant can cure cancer. And he and he swore by it. So just out of plain curiosity, the professor took this plant and started doing research on it. And to his surprise, his, his uh, studies showed that in, indeed has certain, um, I don't know how like the, the scientific term for it was, but he, he found like, you know, certain chemicals that have cancer fighting qualities. And then further to his research, he followed the trail of like wild carrots across the coast of Europe and then in the United States as well. And he didn't find those same chemicals in the plant. So the next step for him was the cannabis plant. And he's out to prove that something about Lebanese soil and the the weather in those areas makes the plant have better disease-fighting qualities, if that makes any sense. And I could see the passion in his eyes when he was talking about this. Like he, he, he loved his research and, you know, he wants to kind of leave a mark and kind of show that this, this plant that grows on Lebanese soil has better qualities than other plants outside of Lebanon. Yeah. And then the other side of the coin is sort of the recipients of that medical marijuana. So talk about uh, the man with MS. This was a very sensitive kind of approach for me. I I didn't know how to really approach this. I was kind of intimidated at first by the subject itself. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But the character himself was so open about it, you know, so open about talking about its benefits that he didn't, you know, he didn't want to even cover his face at at some point. He just wanted to be all out and open and tell his true story so so that it can start helping other people. But I don't want the risk involved to kind of affect him in any way. So I took it upon myself to make this character anonymous. He was so eager to help. He was so eager to get the message out there that, you know, to him, it wasn't only about the physical help that it offered him. It was about the mental support and the spiritual support that it it provided for him. So the way he put it for me that, you know, if they they should legalize CBD as soon as possible so that people can calm the F down, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So but he was he was really a brilliant person to be around. His energy was amazing. And the debates me and him had on and off camera were just phenomenal. He's really, um, you know, wise about it. He's not saying it's the end, you know, it's the cure for everything, but it is, it is a door to a cure. So, Mm -hmm. so you also wrote an article that kind of coincided with this video. Um, and in that 
piece, you talk about how making this film kind of ended up becoming really personal for you. And you talk about how you've um, had family members who've struggled with cancer and you've lost family members to cancer. And um, I'm wondering if you're comfortable with it, if you wouldn't mind talking about sort of the making of this film on a personal level and how you navigated all of those feelings. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, w- I wouldn't mind talking about it at all because during the course of filming this documentary, my cousin passed away after a battle with, with cancer. He was 13 years old. He'd been diagnosed with cancer since he was three years old. And it was it was a long, painful journey for him and his family. And my heart goes out to them. It, it did become very personal to me. It was a very um, heartbreaking moment for all of us in the family. And I did want this to be a more personal approach to the film. But at the same time, I didn't want to get, I didn't want my personal emotions and about what needs to happen get in the way of the film itself. I wanted to keep the integrity of the film separate from my personal life. But I am open to saying outside of the film that, you know, if there is a small chance of it helping anyone in any way, shape or form, and even if not to cure any form of disease, but to ease the pain around the disease, I mean, I'm all for something like that happening. And on another note, you know, Lebanon is starting to become one of the, if not the highest uh, you know, there's and then there's a statistic about this, but we're getting the the highest rates of cancer worldwide, and um, it's still kind of a taboo. So not, I wouldn't say a taboo, but it's still kind of not discussed as openly as it should be. But if this opens up the door to kind of finding ways to to zoom in on this and try to help people and try to see what can be done about this. I'm, I mean, I'm all for it. So uh, I think we're kind of coming to the end of our interview, and I just want to hear a little bit about what your biggest takeaways from the filming process are and what you want your viewers and our listeners to really understand when hearing this interview or watching the video and kind of walking away, what do you want them to be thinking about? Well, I mean, to start, I would say that this runs really deep. There is no one documentary that can really show all the ins and outs of it. There is no one viewpoint to everything. Uh, There's a lot of people involved here, and there's a lot of livelihoods at stake. But what we aim to do with this documentary is to kind of go in there and just see what it's like on the ground. I was a bit frustrated with all the media surrounding the Bekaa Valley and Lebanon itself when it came to this to this topic because it, it only kind of meant to glorify violence in a way or glorify mafia culture or illegal trades, but it runs so much deeper than that. There's there's whole entire communities that you know neighbor each other that are just trying to survive and make something out of their lives and and at the same time there's there is a government in place that is trying to find how best to deal with this Um, it might not be the best equipped to deal with this but 
I really hope that they come out with a reasonable solution for Lebanon itself and the people involved in this. And one of the biggest challenges, I would say, was capturing that. I mean, I'd, I'd never, I'd been to the Bekaa Valley. I have family that live in the Bekaa Valley, but I, I, I'd never been to those parts of the communities. And I was kind of, I'd never done anything like this where I went and documented and, and, uh, and it was a very sensitive topic. A lot of people didn't want to be on camera and it's really hard to gain the trust of these communities, especially since there's been so much media out to portray the negatives. And there are a lot of negatives. I'm not just saying, I'm not saying that it's a perfect society and it should be just left undealt with. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of criminal activity and but it, it runs deeper than that. And it, it, it's more, it takes more than just one documentary to showcase that. But what we're hoping to do is that it opens up a kind of conversation and it drops the, the unrealistic taboos surrounding this topic and show people what it's like on the ground. And from there, they can make their own judgments and start to decide whether they want to be active about this or not. Well, thank you so much, Roni. This was really interesting. You can watch the full documentary at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.